The second Bible reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 to 21, which can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 778. Isaiah chapter 59, starting from verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. Midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. This is God's word. Thank you, Natasha. Now, we've been working through Isaiah for a few months now, and I hope you've been personally 
nourished, encouraged by these words, written so long ago, a couple of thousand years ago, written not about us, but it is written for us, for the building of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, do keep your Bibles open again. Uh, Keep it to Isaiah 59, and let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we sit under your word once again, we pray that you will build our faith in the Lord Jesus as we reflect on these words written so long ago, written about the people back then, but written for us today that our faith might be built up, and we pray that you will do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in my household, uh, a common statement I hear around from time to time, and I don't like it when I hear it, but when I hear it, it's a statement from not Yvonne or myself, but from those who live with us. And it's a statement, it's not fair. I don't like it when I hear it, hear it often enough. It's not fair that she gets more than me. It's not fair that he gets a girl and I, I don't. It's just not fair, it's not fair. And you know what I say in response? as the man of the household. I say, life is meant to be unfair. (laughs) Now, if you're thinking there, well, what type of harsh or cruel parent would say that to their own children? I actually just want them to face the harsh realities of life, toughen them up a bit. But when children do say that, they cry out, it's unfair, it's unfair. What is it that they're expressing? You see, when children cry out, it's unfair, it's not fair, what is it that they're longing for? Well, you see, what they're longing for as children is really what all people long for. It's what you and I long for as well. And what is it that we long for? It is justice. We want justice, especially if we've experienced injustice, if injustice was against us. Someone's hurt us or abused us or lied to us or lied about us or cheated on us or broke our body or broke our spirit. We cry out, we want justice. But of course our question this morning is, where is justice? How do you find it? Where do you get it? Will there be justice? And is it at all possible? I mean, just look at the news this past week and some of the things we see, the protests in Hong Kong still been going on for quite a while. There's violence. Many hurt, many injured, many concerned about what will happen with their democracy. And so the question, will there be justice? Or the explosions in Bangkok this past week, two people died. Will there be justice? Or in Brazil, a prison riot, 52 dead, 16 decapitated in Brazil. Will there be justice? I mean, they're just some of the headlines this past week. And of course you read that, and it's not just numbers, is it? Every one of those numbers, it's a person. Whether there's a a wife, or a husband, or a father, or mother, or sons and daughters, or brothers and sisters. So many people affected, not just numbers. And so, where is justice? Will there be justice? How would you answer that? Have a think about that. How will you answer? Will there be justice at all? Well, if your answer is no, that there will be no justice, finally and ultimately there will be no justice, which really means you don't believe in God as the final and great judge. It means that all our crying out for justice 
our longing for fairness and justice. Now, it's just all meaningless. It's hopeless completely. If there is no justice, ultimately, what it means then is that this world is in big trouble. Big, big trouble. Hopeless and completely hopeless. Everything anyone does, we can just ultimately, eventually get away with it. But if your answer is yes, that there will be justice one day, ultimately and finally there will be justice where every hidden thought, every wicked intention, every careless word, every deed done under the sun will be held to account. Nothing escapes. If that is your answer, then we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. And that's what God is teaching us in this passage. We do want justice. We long for justice, and it is a good thing. We want God to do something, but we need to be careful what we ask for because we're part of the problem, and that's what we see in this passage. So let's have a look. The people of God begin here with sort of like a complaint. God, if you're real, why don't you do something about the injustices we see around the world? Can't you just fix it all up? Why don't you listen to us? Answer us, save us. And what does the prophet Isaiah, how does he respond? Well, he responds by saying, the problem is not God's. It is yours. Don't blame God, how often we do that. But don't blame God. It is your problem. The injustices you see around the world is because of you. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save that is, if God wanted to save, of course he can, and of course he, he has the power to do. And then we read on. Nor his ear too dull to hear. That is, God hears our pleas. But the problem is, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so what's Isaiah saying? The injustices, the hardships, the suffering you see around, don't blame God. Blame yourself. Don't point the finger at God. Point it at yourself. But how easy it is for all of us, really, to blame God when things are difficult, when things are tough, when we experience injustice. There was a study conducted by a psychologist in, in the States from a university there. Her name is Julie X. Line. She said up to two-thirds of the people in America, and it's probably not too different in Australia, up to two-thirds of the people in America will be angry at God when something goes wrong with, with the things they're suffering with in life. They'll be angry with God first. See, if it's bad, it's God's fault. That's our natural reaction. God is the easy target. But as I hear reminds us, don't point your finger at God. Point your finger at yourself. And so Isaiah now, he does the finger pointing. He paints a picture of what they're like, what the people of God are like. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, they've got blood on their hands. That is, they're the cause of injustice. Deceit on their lips, they speak lies. They lack integrity. That is, they've perverted justice. They've turned a blind eye. And so in verse 3, you see he's pointing the finger. Your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue. Now, when we read this, it's just hard to imagine that anyone can be so unjust and wicked and evil. Surely people like to think we're all very decent people. 
We're all inherently good. But that's not what God thinks. Not what God thinks at all. If the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse says anything, what does it say? It shows the capacity of humanity to be so evil. You can see all the stories from the commissioners that, that were reported to them online, and I spent some time reading just some of the stories of the private sessions recorded, and it is just deeply depressing. In fact, deeply sickening. How could it happen? Well, people say it takes good people to do nothing, but God would say there is no one good at all. No human being, not one soul, no one good at all. And this is God's assessment on humanity. It's the problem of the human heart. No one is without guilt, even the people of God. And now what we read, as described here, should make us really quite uncomfortable. A bit queasy. It's something like out of a nightmare. You know, the, the hairs on our, uh, the back of our necks stand up, send shivers down our spine. Look at verse 5 now. He's describing the people of God. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when, when one is broken, an adder is hatched. I mean, you wouldn't really want to eat an omelette made from snake's eggs, would you? Chicken eggs, that's okay. Duck eggs, quail eggs, that's all right. But snake eggs? Eggs of a poisonous snake? God is trying to show how rotten people are at their very core verse 6 their cobwebs are useless for clothing they cannot cover themselves with what they make that is their efforts are useless the godless society they cannot help themselves their deeds are evil deeds and acts of violence are in their hands and again we read that and we perhaps think oh that can't really be true can it i'm sure there's good in humanity how can that be a description of humanity? But when you consider just the last century, all the atrocities, the, the genocide of the Armenians, the genocide in Rwanda, the horrors of Auschwitz, the killing fields of Cambodia, the millions who died under the communist regimes, and then every day around the world, every corner of the globe, you add violence and abuse and rape and abortion and torture and murder you see what is described here is no exaggeration this is our world and so look at verses seven to eight now their feet rush into sin not merely fall into it but rush into it they are swift to shed innocent blood their thoughts are evil thoughts ruin and instruction mark their ways the way of peace they do not know there is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. And so what's God's assessment? In this world of ours, there is no peace. The vulnerable continue to be oppressed. The poor are kept in poverty. The oppressors get away with it. Corruption goes unnoticed. Justice is perverted. And what does God say? What is God's assessment on all humanity? There is indeed injustice. And so what do you do if this is what God thinks of the world and of us? 
even in the people of God. What do you do when someone exposes to you that, yeah, you know, things are not right here. In fact, not just not right, you're, you're wicked, you're evil. What if God says that to us? Well, when anyone tells me that I'm wrong, I never like it. I never like it. I, I get defensive. I make excuses. I blame someone else. It's probably El Nino, whoever that is. I ignore it. I dismiss it. I don't like being told that I'm wrong. But what's the right response? If this is what God says, it's the state of the human heart. How do you respond to God rightly if he exposes and says, this is, this is not right? You're not right. Well, do you notice now here, Isaiah was pointing the finger at them. Verse 3, your hands, your fingers, your lips, your tongue, you're the cause of injustice. But do you notice now in verse 9, the, the, the language changes. It's now not you, but us. It goes from the second person to the first person, which means they are now finally owning it. We're admitting it. We're confessing it. They're in fact now saying, we've been exposed. And it is our fault. No excuses, no denial, no blaming. And that's what you do. If God and when God exposes our heart, we own it. So do you see that? Verse 9. Verses 9 and 10. So justice is far from us. You see, they're owning it now. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but always darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. See, it's our fault. It's a bit like in that kid's uh, lesson. You know, the, the tax collector, I'm a sinner. Not like the Pharisee, but the tax collector, I'm a sinner in need of mercy. And so what does this show? When you respond like this, God points it out, and now we say, yes, it is my fault. What it shows is a heart of contrition, of remorse, of sorrow. It's the first step in turning back, turning around, repenting, turning back to God. You see, if our lives is always categorized by being preoccupied with the sins and fault of all those around us always pointing the finger and not concerned for our own faults then we're in serious spiritual trouble this is a good confession this is something i always try to remember in my pastoral ministry from time to time as a pastor i would hear the faults and the sins and the past and the shames and the regrets of some of those amongst us they will share in confidence and my principle has always been never stand above them as someone who's self-righteous never stand in judgment like i've never sinned i always remember the principle i'm always a beggar telling another beggar where to find food i always remember the principle i'm also forgiven telling another person where to find forgiveness I'm one who also rests in the mercy and grace of God. And so this was what the people of God began to recognize here. They confessed their sins before God, not self-righteous here. Look at verses 11 to 13. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. Now, I don't know how that 
illustration there sounds to you, but I never knew that doves moaned. But whatever it sounds like, it's probably very depressing. We look for justice, but we find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. And then verse 12, they confess it. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turn our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. It is a depressing confession, but it is true. Now, what we may not realize is that every mistake, every sin, every, everything we commit against another person is ultimately an offense against God. You see, if I lie and I, and I sin against someone else, a brother or sister, I'm not just sinning against them. I'm also sinning against God. The offense is always ultimately against God as well. It's a bit like if in our household our kids are fighting with each other. Their sin's not just against each other. It is also against Yvonne and myself as their parents. In our household, we don't be behave this way. You're not allowed to. And so all sins that we do in life, all crimes, all faults, are ultimately against God. And so here as I, the people of God, they rightly confess, the fault is mine. I've offended God. There is injustice, and it is because of me. And so how do you expect God to respond then? The world that was meant to be paradise has become so rotten. Well, look at what God sees. Verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. God is saying, looking upon humanity and says, there is no resource from within you to save yourself. Nothing to redeem yourself. And so what do we need? Well, what we need, who we need, is God himself. It's only God who can fix up the problem. It's only God who can bring justice. It's only God who can fix it all up. And that's what God promises. Verse 16 again. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He says it's God's own righteousness that demands justice, and that will mean judgment and salvation. You don't get justice without judgment. When we cry for justice, we're actually demanding judgment. And that's what God promises he will do. And he'll come himself as the judge, like an unstoppable warrior. We see this description, a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation. He'll bring judgment. And then verse 18 we read, According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Which means every single soul will one day face God. The murderer will have their day before God. The thief will have their day before God. The adulterer will have their day before God. The liar, the proud, the greedy, the self-righteous, which means every single one of us will have our day before God. And that should be horrifying. He will bring justice and that means judgment. 
But God not only brings judgment, but also salvation, we see. Because those who confess, just like in that kid's story, like the tax collector, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. I am wrong, it's my fault, God. There is salvation, you see. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. And God will bring it about by the one he's given his spirit to, by the one who speaks the word of God. And we've already been hinted at who that is early in Isaiah. It's the servant of the Lord. It's the suffering servant. It's the conquering king. He is the focal point of relationship between God and humanity. He's the one who will bring judgment and salvation. And who is that? Well, we know where all this is leading, isn't it? Every single week he's looking forward to fulfillment and ultimately finds fulfillment in Jesus. But how will it be possible for God to bring judgment and at the same time for none of us to be destroyed? If he's going to bring judgment, it means that we have to be destroyed. We're the cause of injustice. It's our sin. It's our fault. How can God bring justice and for us not to be destroyed? How can God be completely just and not allow any fault or sin to go unpunished? Well, the only way is if someone else takes it upon himself. It's the only way, and that's the way God has promised. Fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ, his son. At the cross, all of God's anger for all our faults were poured on him. And that's why in our first reading, in Romans 3, God presented him, that is his son, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. At the cross, we see ultimately the justice of God. God can be just. God can punish sin. God can bring salvation. God can pour out his love so that those who believe in Jesus are safe in his arms forever and ever. And so now when we cry out in our life that we live, where is justice? How are we meant to think about that? Well, we do so by remembering the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Knowing that he suffered, he knows injustice from the inside. And so when we suffer injustice, he knows what it feels like. He can identify with us. But the same Jesus also promised that he will be the one who will return one day to judge. All souls will be standing before him in judgment. He's the one who will hold us all to account so that one day all wicked and evil and injustice will become a thing of the past. It's how we can cope with the injustices we see in the world. It's the only way we can cope with the injustices that we might experience if we think about Jesus, who himself suffered injustice, who himself says he will come and will make evil and suffering and weakness a thing of the past. Now, I do want to share a story to end of one extraordinary woman who, who we can learn from as she experienced terrible, brutal injustices in her life. Now, do you know the story of Dr. Helen Rosevear, famous English missionary to Congo, became a Christian in the Christian Union Group at Cambridge, 
she studied medicine and after she finished her doctorate she went at 28 years of age to be a missionary in the Congo she did so much for the locals trained up nurses set up hospital trained up doctors and then in the 1960s the Congo became independent of Belgium and then in 1964 a civil war broke out her medical facilities, all the hospitals and all that she set up, destroyed. You just think from her perspective, she's given up so much to go there to help or destroy. Gross injustice. Worse, when the civil war broke out, her and her nine missionary friends were arrested by rebel forces, imprisoned for five months. And you just think, gross injustice. How could God let that happen? But it gets worse. She goes and describes when she was captured by those rebel forces. They, they dragged her. They beat her. They struck her. They beat her so that she was bleeding and her teeth were broken. And she felt just numbness. Horror and a fear unknown before. She was dragged, pushed out of her home, yelled at, insulted, cursed. And you think, she gave up so much to be a missionary for God in the Congo. For her to experience that, gross injustice. Now, how do, you, how do you handle that as a Christian? But it gets worse. She was brutally sexually abused by those rebel army people. Gross injustice. And she was a missionary. How can you get through life when not just know about it, but experience that? Where is justice? How on earth could she have coped? Well, after she was rescued, she went back to the UK for a year. And then what did she do? Throw in the towel as a Christian? Give it all up? No, she didn't. She went back to the Congo and started again another medical training college. How on earth can anyone face and experience such gross, brutal injustice if it was not for the cross of Christ? if it was not for knowing that she was already safe in the arms of Jesus, the one who brought justice, the one who bore her injustices, if it's not for knowing that justice will one day be complete and final when Jesus returns. And as horrible as her experience was, she was able to say this, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience, God met with me with outstretched arms of love, and so when we cry out, where is justice? What are we to think? The Lord Jesus on the cross bore our injustices. And he himself promises he will come back one day and will clean it all up. will fix it all up. Now, Helen Roosevelt, she passed away in 2016. And no doubt, she returned to the sweet, sweet arms of Jesus in overwhelming love. And perhaps even hearing Jesus say to her, it's okay now. It's all over. You see, life is unfair, isn't it? But the wonderful promise of the gospel is that eternity will not be unfair. There is justice, finally and ultimately, for those who trust in Jesus. We see it in the cross already, and one day it will be forever. It will be forever. Let's pray.